The children are being dismissed for junior church. Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis 35. Verse 1, meaning that we're not in chapter 34 anymore. The title of our message this morning as we seek to look at verses 1 through 8 today in our continuing verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis. The title of our message this morning is God's Faithfulness. God's faithfulness. God in this section of the book of Genesis, chapter 27 through 36, is raising up Jacob to be sort of the vehicle to channel the blessings God gave to Abraham and Isaac through. The nation of Israel is being birthed, a very special nation, because God has intended to bless the world through Israel. That's why all of this information is given. And if you just look at the numbers there, we just have chapter 35 and then 36, and then finally we'll move into the section uh, that most people know most about the book of Genesis, more familiar territory, the story of Joseph. But before we get there, we've got a few loose ends to tie up concerning Jacob. Jacob, as you'll remember, was sojourning in Haran, where he was mistreated by Laban for two decades. Laban was seeking to cheat him economically, etc., and through it all, God was faithful. Not only is Jacob preserved, but his family comes into existence and grows. His wealth comes into existence and grows. And God says, okay, Jacob, it's now time to return to the land of your birth, the land of Canaan, which will later be called the land of Israel. Jacob, as we studied in chapter 34, end of chapter 33, end of chapter 34, has sojourned in Shechem, where Simeon and Levi, two of his sons, go on a tear, I guess we can put it that way. They wipe out all of the males, the men, under guile and deception in Shechem because of their mistreatment of their full sister, Dinah. And it's at that point that we learn that it's a matter of time before God has to take this little group, Jacob and his sons, the entourage, now becoming the nation of Israel, out of Canaan for their protection because they had become odious to the Canaanites for what they did. And that is going to pave the way for the Joseph account beginning in chapter 37, where God raises up Joseph for that task to get Israel out of Canaan into Egypt for 400 years of protection. But before all of that happens, we have some transitionary issues in chapter 35 to think about, without which the Joseph story would make very little sense. And so those are laid out according to our outline here in chapter 35. As time permits, we're just going to be able to cover verses 1 through 8 this morning. Jacob journeying from Shechem to Bethel. So here's an outline, if you will, of verses 1 through 8 as we try to look at these verses uh, this morning. First of all, notice a divine revelation now comes to Jacob. It says there, Then God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God, 
who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Notice this expression here, then God said to Jacob. Jacob was privileged in the sense that he received direct, audible communication from God. This is part of something that God said he would do for certain individuals, patriarchs of the nation of Israel, when God, all the way back in Genesis 12 and verse 2, said to Abram, I will bless you. One of those blessings is these patriarchs received a direct messages from the Lord. In fact, as we've studied the Jacob story, this is the fourth revelation that God has given to Jacob. And God, in this revelation, gives to Jacob two commands. You'll see those there in verse 1. Arise, go to Bethel and live there. That's command number one. And number two, make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So you've got to do two things here, Jacob, as God is communicating to Jacob. You need to go and dwell in Bethel. Leave Shechem and go to Bethel. There is sort of a map showing you where Shechem is, where Jacob was when he received this message, and then down uh, south a little bit is Bethel. There's maybe a clearer map showing you where Jacob is to sojourn to. Leave Shechem, go to Bethel, and dwell there. In other words, make Bethel your home for a while. The duration, uh, we're not told. It's just go and do it. And when you get there to Bethel, I want you to build an altar. Now, this is very interesting because typically the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, built altars on their own. They usually did it spontaneously without God saying anything. A few verses on that, I won't read them all, but you can jot down Genesis 12, 7, and 8. Genesis 13, verse 18, Revelation, uh, not Revelation, that's a bit far afield, wouldn't it? Genesis 22, 9, Genesis 26, 25, Genesis 33, 20. Typically, these patriarchs built altars on their own. This time, God said, God speaks up as he's communicating to Jacob and says, build the altar. Why did God uh, speak up here? Well, he wants Jacob to remember something. How over 20 years earlier, Jacob was in Bethel, you remember. And it was at that time, God said to Jacob, even before he went up north to Haran, Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, all descendants of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Why go to Bethel? the place he had been before over 20 years earlier. Why build an altar? Because that's where God appeared to Jacob the first time. That's where the Abrahamic covenant, you might recognize a lot of that language I just read, related to what God originally said he would do through the patriarch Abraham. That's where the Abrahamic covenant was reconfirmed to Jacob. That's where Jacob learned that he was the seed son. These promises would come through him, not Esau. And then God said, you're going to travel and sojourn. God never said it's going to be easy. But when it's all said and done, I'm going to bring you right back from Haran into the land that you left. And so Bethel was a very, very special place. 
And that's why God speaks up here and says, leave Shechem, go to Bethel, and build an altar. Jacob, of course, is walking in obedience, and he relates the message that God had just given him to the rest of his household. Look at verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, who would these people be? Obviously his sons, his only daughter, Dinah, who has just been rescued, Genesis 34, and it would also include servants, slaves, and prisoners of war from what just happened in chapter 34, where Simeon and Levi killed all of the males in Shechem. And no doubt there were many prisoners of war they took with them. And so Jacob receives this information from the Lord and he communicates it to his household, which would include all of these groups that I have been speaking of. And he communicates to them three commands. Number one, put away foreign gods. Verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and all who are with him, put away foreign gods which are among you. That's command number one from Jacob to his household. Number two, and purify yourselves. And number three, change your garments. (laughs) So why, why did he say here, put away foreign gods? Well, these slaves, prisoners of war from Shechem, being Canaanites, obviously had many, many foreign gods with them. Jacob says, you need to get rid of those. You remember that Rachel stole the teraphim from her father, or from Laban. And so there's another example where Rachel needed to get rid of foreign gods. And this idea of getting rid of foreign gods is really a practice that the New Testament Christian should be involved in. This is a description here, Acts 19, verse 19, of the most influential part of Paul's ministry when many in Ephesus in the book of Acts came to Christ. These are people that are converted out of paganism under the influence of the Apostle Paul. And it says of those individuals, many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. The Ryrie Study Bible has a very important note here. It says 50,000 pieces of silver. If the silver drachma is meant, the value of what that group in Ephesus burned would have been the equivalent of 138 years of pay for a rural worker. This is how the earliest Christians dealt with foreign gods and paganism that they were practicing before they became Christians. They took all of that paraphernalia and they burned it at great expense to themselves. This is what Jacob is telling his household to do. you got to get rid of these foreign gods. you got to get rid of these statues. And I would just say that that is a wonderful practice for us to be involved in. Our houses should not be filled with occultic-type books. They shouldn't be filled with Ouija boards and board games that sort of traffic in the dark side. They shouldn't be filled with literature promoting the dark side. What God wants us to do is to just get rid of all of that stuff, even if it's expensive. Get rid of it because that's the pathway to blessing. A lot of people within modern-day Christianity want to be blessed. Jacob, as we're going to see, is going to be further blessed because he's going to receive yet another divine revelation in verses 9 through 15. And yet, biblically, there is a pathway to blessing. The pathway to blessing is the sanctified lifestyle where we stop allowing 
cable television programs perhaps, devices on our phone, apps that take us into areas that are not good for the Christian's thought life. The blessing in the Christian life comes where we start to remove those things from our lives. We stop giving them the inroads that they once had. We stop giving them the presence that they once had. Paul the Apostle speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 16, when he says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a blessing that is, that last part of the verse. And yet there's a prerequisite for it. It's removing ourselves from ungodly influences. As Christians, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Interaction with unbelievers is common. You couldn't function in life without that. But the Christian is warned all of the time about putting themselves into a situation of a personal, intimate nature with unbelievers, those who have a different value system than us, whose value system could influence us negatively. And so this is what Jacob is telling his household uh, to do. Put away your foreign gods which are among you. Purify yourselves. That's probably speaking of some kind of ritual immersion. Should we practice ritual immersion today? Absolutely. It's right there in 1 John 1 verse 9. We practiced it prior to Sunday school this morning. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins unto the Lord not to get eternal life. We already have that. Not because we lost salvation. We already have that. But living with a fallen nature in a fallen world, we can do things that are displeasing to the Lord. And we need to get into a frame of mind where we confess or agree with God that such things are not of Him. And we need to do that as part of a ritual, so to speak, before church, before Bible study, so that we can receive unhindered from the Lord. First John chapter 1 and verse 9 won't get you saved, but what it will do is it will restore broken fellowship. Because you can be married to someone legally, but do something to insult them. In such a scenario, you're still married legally. But your moment-by-moment enjoyment of that person is hindered until you acknowledge what you've done. That's the way 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 works in the life of the Christian. It won't get you saved, but it will restore broken fellowship. And that fellowship must be restored if we are going to receive everything that God has for us. Put away the foreign gods which are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. James chapter 4 and verse 8 puts it this way for the New Testament Christian. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And now that Jacob and his household have done that, they're on the path to blessing. As we walk those things out in our progressive sanctification, the middle tense of our salvation, we're on the pathway to blessing as well. Purify yourselves, change your garments, put away foreign gods, 
And as you go to verse 3, Jacob reiterates the purpose of the, of the journey that they will now make from Shechem to Bethel. Verse 3. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. First thing we're going to do when we get to to Bethel is we are going to build an altar. Why are you going to build an altar? Jacob explains the altar is for two reasons. It's a remembrance of how God answered me in the day of my distress. God answered Jacob in the day of his distress when his brother Esau was trying to kill him, you remember. And how God spared Jacob from that situation. And even as Jacob went up north to Haran and was mistreated economically by Laban, God was with Jacob in that time period for 20 years. And now, now go back to the place where I originally gave you this, um, these covenantal promises and build an altar for me. What, what a wonderful thing it is to... If you're a journal keeper of any kind, it's a practice I would encourage to just sort of flip back to a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, and to see the faithful hand of the Lord in our lives. Sometimes we're so busy moving from crisis to crisis that we don't take time to reflect upon what God has done for us. We're so busy asking for new things, nothing wrong with that, that we forget the faithful hand of God in the past. And a, a journal of five years ago when you can see the emergency and you look at that and you say, wow, God sure helped me out of that one. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he'll help me out of any problem I'm in now. Just the, the power of doing that. That's why Jacob is told to build this altar. God God answered me in the day of my distress. And then it says, and has been with me wherever I have gone. No matter where I've gone, Haran, fleeing from Esau, God has always been with me. Isn't that God? what God said he would do for Jacob over 20 years earlier? Back at Bethel in Genesis 28, verse 15, God said, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob has no corner on God. God is the same in your life. God is the same in my life. He is 100% faithful 100% of the time. There isn't anywhere you could go as a Christian where you could leave God behind. We might grieve the Spirit, quench the Spirit, resist the Spirit, but the Spirit is in us, what did Jesus say? Forever. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't get rid of God in your life if you wanted to. It's a permanent resident. Proverbs 18 verse 24 says, A man of too many friends comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Isaiah 43 and verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Are you walking through some deep waters today? And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. Nor will the flame burn you. 
You ever thought about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Daniel chapter 3. And the verse they were thinking about as Nebuchadnezzar was ushering them into the fiery furnace. My professor, J. Dwight Pentecost, taught us when I took him for the book of Daniel, he said they were probably thinking about Isaiah 43, verse 2, the verse we just read. Daniel 3, 24 and 25, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his officials, Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, king. He said, Look, I see four. Four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Jesus said when he sent out the disciples to fulfill the great commission, Matthew 28 Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth or the end of the age. Hebrews 13, verse 5, God says, I will never leave you, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. The 100% Faithfulness of God 100% of the time. And isn't this a great time of the year to think about it? I mean, we're just entering November. The 2023 is going to be over before we know it. Isn't this a great time of the year to think about what God has done for us over the last 10 months or so? There are a lot of problems brewing in our world, as you know. There's a, there's a lot of problems taking place in our nation. Yet I can say this from my own personal life, although I don't deserve it, God has been with me 100% of the time and He is completely and totally faithful. You know, even this church, you know, Sugarland Bible Church, look, look at how the Lord is blessed. How God has been faithful to a small handful of Christians seeking to gather here on a regular basis. The faithfulness of God. We're going to go back to Bethel. We're going to build an altar. God told me to build it. But we're going to build it because we want to give testimony to what the Lord has done. And what happens next is sort of a spiritual cleansing. It's in verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods, which they had, and the rings, which were in their ears. Uh Uh-oh, earrings, look at that. (laughs) And Jacob hid them under the oak, which is near Shechem. First of all, they got rid of all the foreign gods and buried them. Why would they bury foreign gods? Because with the foreign gods came foreign magic. The book of Hosea, chapter 2, verse 13, God says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she used to offer sacrifices to them and adorn herself with her earrings and her jewelry and follow her lovers so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. I get the impression that God, as a jealous God, does not like competition. He's the groom or the bride. He doesn't like it when we traffic into sources of energy or power that are not of Him. And then it talks here about the earrings. And their earrings, which were in their ears. And I've heard a lot of legalists go on a great rant about jewelry, earrings, makeup. Typically quoting this verse in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. 
Your adornment, speaking to women, must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing of jewelry, or putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A lot of people say, well, a woman should not beautify herself in any sense because of that, those verses. I'm here to tell you that that's not what the verse is saying. In this context here, Genesis 35, earrings meant something in terms of paganism, but that's not what they mean everywhere. All First Peter is talking about is when a person does kind of a balancing act between outer appearance and inward character, place more emphasis on the inward character because that's what's going to last. It's not a, a question of exclusion. It's a question of priorities. And, of course, we live in a society that worships youth and beauty. The Christian isn't to be that way. The Christian is to place more of an emphasis on inner character, which will last. J. Vernon McGee was once asked, should a woman wear makeup? And I like his answer. He said, well, if the barn needs painting, then paint the barn. (laughs) And I think that's true for all of us. There's nothing wrong with outer appearance, jewelry, and, and things of that nature. Just don't let that be the defining issue in one's life. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's not, he's not saying there, don't have a bank account. Don't have a retirement account. That's not what he's saying. He's saying just do a balancing act. That's all. Between earthly riches and heavenly riches, let the scales of one's priorities tip in the area of heavenly riches. That's what's going to last. Everything else could be stolen, inflation can deteriorate it, etc., etc. But what do they do with these earrings and so forth, foreign gods? It says, Jacob hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. So they hadn't started the journey yet. But they're getting rid of all of this stuff, and and Jacob is burying it. Did you know that there's coming into the land of Israel one day, according to Ezekiel's prophecies, the great Gog, Magog invasion? with Russia, Turkey, Iran, and a host of other nations participating. It's in your Bible. It's in Ezekiel 38 and 39. I would argue that some of the things that we've seen in the Middle East since October the 7th is sort of stage setting, if you will, for that scenario. And why are these invaders coming? Well, Ezekiel tells us. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, the invaders, have you come to capture the spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder and to carry away silver and gold? Look at that. And take away cattle and goods and to capture great spoil. They're coming for the metal. They're coming for the gold and the silver. Which, of course, means that the nation of Israel must have gold and silver. Where did this gold and silver come from? From things like this right here in verse 4. Things Jacob hid that are, I believe, destined to be unearthed through archaeology, discovered in the land of Israel, which will whet the appetite for the invaders. You know, it says of Solomon, the third king of the United Kingdom, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 15, the king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones. Gold and silver was as common as rocks. 
under the Solomonic reign. I just have a little question. Where did all the gold and silver go? Because when Nebuchadnezzar came and took the nation of Israel into the Babylonian captivity, and when they came out of the Babylonian captivity, as you read carefully the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, that post-exilic time period, there's a record of wealth, but it's small potatoes in comparison to what Solomon had. Where did it go exactly? Conjecture. Solomon had it buried. Just like what we're seeing here. In fact, he probably, he probably left a little out so the Babylonians would, uh, not suspect anything. But he probably buried it so well that subsequent generations forgot where it was. Just like earrings and foreign gods and things that Jacob is bearing here in Shechem. I'm just of the persuasion that it's just a matter of time before the nation of Israel starts discovering all of this stuff. And as that starts to happen, according to Ezekiel's prophecies, that will be the silver and gold that these nations will come into the land of Israel to gain. It's kind of interesting to look at Russia and Russia's interest in the gold-backed currency now. All things gold. This is what Ezekiel said would happen in the last days. Just keep that in mind and don't be shocked when you wake up one day and read in your newspaper of a massive gold and silver discovery within the land of Israel. Once that happens, you'll say to yourself, we're prophetically right on time. Because this is what God said would happen. So here goes the journey from Shechem to Bethel. It's there in verse 5. It says, As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. There's our little map from Shechem uh, down south to Bethel. As they're moving, you'll notice the terror of the Canaanites. What were the Canaanites afraid of exactly? Well, they had just witnessed Simeon and Levi through guile, and maybe the rest of the Canaanites didn't know the deception that happened, but they watched two guys destroy all of the males, eradicate them in an entire city, and that probably put fear in the rest of the Canaanites. Maybe God is the one that put fear in the rest of the Canaanites. The text doesn't say... But at any rate, the result is given at the end of verse 5. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. The Canaanites in this journey left Jacob and his descendants alone. And here they arrive down south at Bethel. And it's right there in verse 6. So Jacob came to lose, and then notice the parenthetical comment, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and all the people who were with him. So he leaves Shechem, arrives at Bethel. We're reminded of the fact that the original name of Bethel was Luz. In fact, it was Jacob himself that changed the name from Luz to Bethel over 20 years earlier in Genesis 28 and verse 19. 20 years earlier, it says he called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of that city was Luz. And it talks here about all the people that were with him. Verse 6, and all, all the peoples who were with him. Look at the faithfulness of God, returning to that theme for a minute. He, he, he left Canaan and went into Haran virtually empty-handed. And now he's got not one wife, but two. <laughs> and he's got two maidservants. 
And from those unions came his 12 sons, Jacob's dozen, Benjamin, uh, as we're going to see in this chapter, is yet to be born, so I guess 11. Did make a mistake last week. I think I said Benjamin was the firstborn. That That isn't true, and that's a crazy thing to say because Benjamin didn't exist yet when we were in chapter 34. Reuben is the firstborn. And that is not the last mistake nor the first I'll ever make. So that's why when you are here at this church, you need to be a Berean and search the scriptures out yourself. The authority in this church is not me. The authority in this church is God's word. A pastor teacher only has value to you to the extent that he maintains fidelity to God's word. We we seek to do that, but, you know, mistakes and things of that nature can creep up. I may actually intentionally make a mistake. Could I do that just to test you, see if you're listening? So the the hand of God, all of these companies and all of these people that were with me, when, when I left for Haran, this is what it says in Genesis 32, verse 10. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant, for with my staff only, this rod, in other words, I crossed the Jordan, and now I came back with two companies. I left fleeing from Esau with the clothes on my back, and now look how the Lord is blessed. I have two companies. Look, look at my family. Look at the origin of the 12 tribes. Look at my two wives and two maidservants. Look at my wealth. During a time when Laban sought over and over again to cheat me. And look at what God has done. And look at your own life that way. Remember those times that were leaner, perhaps, than what you're enjoying today. Or those times when relationships were strained. And now look at the relationships the Lord has given you. God has been very, very faithful in your life. He's been very, very faithful in my life. He's been very, very faithful here at Sugarland Bible Church. And why not build an altar, metaphorically speaking, and worship the Lord and give Him credit for what He's done? It's, it's just a wonderful thing to not so much be concerned about the next problem or crisis, but to just think back at the faithful hand of God and give Him the praise that He deserves. For He has, as the song says, done great things. What, what a time of the year, November, Thanksgiving, to, to think about that. And as this altar is built, we see sort of a naming process going on there in uh, verse 7. It says, he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. He thought he was going to die. He thought he was going to be a murder victim. And yet God spoke to him. 20 years earlier. God revealed himself to Jacob 20 years earlier. And, and let's, let's build an altar to remember what God has done. So the altar is built. And why build an altar there at Bethel? It says in verse 7, because there God had revealed himself to him. Why worship God? Because God has spoken. What is worship? There's a very simple definition to it. It really has very little to do with styles and whether you get the liver quiver of the day and whether one's personal preferences are met about this instrument or that instrument. The whole uh, worship wars mentality within evangelicalism People fighting about different styles of music. 
not a single one of them involved in these disputes can tell you what worship is. I'm here to tell you what worship is. Worship is a response to truth. I mean, God revealed himself to Jacob, and so Jacob built an altar for purposes of worship. That's worship. Whether it's done organ, guitar, acapella, whatever, becomes sort of irrelevant. When you're in the presence of a speaking God, who has revealed himself as your creator and your redeemer, what other excuse do you need? other than to gather with the people of God involved in collective worship to God. And that's what Jacob does here. He builds this altar because that's where God spoke to him 20 years earlier. That's where God revealed himself to Jacob 20 years earlier. And Jacob actually names this altar El Bethel, which means the God of Bethel. Literally what that means is the God of the house of God. Now, how are you doing as we're moving through Genesis on your names for God? You keeping a record of that? God has been identified as El Roy, the, the God who sees. Each name brings out a different feature or attribute of God. God in Genesis 21:33 uh has been called El meaning God, Olam meaning forever. The everlasting God. The uncaused cause. The one who has always been and will always be. El God Olam forever. How about this one? Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. The provision of God. The provision of Jesus as our Savior. The, the, the provision of God's people in a shrinking inflationary economy. How, how could God not provide for us when that's his name? No matter what our economic circumstances might be. Elohim, referring to his power. There's the verses in parenthesis where you'll find all these names. Yahweh, he's relational. El Roy, he's aware. El Olam, he's eternal. Jehovah Jireh, he's the provider. He's called the God Isaac feared. He's to be reverenced. He's, he's called God the God of Israel referring to his national connection to the nation of Israel that he is forming in the book of Genesis. We have another one coming towards, uh, we won't get to it today, where God is called El Shaddai. He was actually called that earlier in the book of Genesis, Genesis 17, verse 1. Speaking of his might, he is almighty. And here's another one, number 8. Of nine, El Bethel, the God of the house of God. You, you build a house for me, you build an altar for me, and I will be God over that place of worship. How we should strive for that here at Sugarland Bible Church. You know, so many churches, and you can see this in the book of Revelation with the church at Laodicea, where Jesus is outside the door of the church, and the church is having Christianity without Christ. It is completely possible in modern-day Christianity to go through the ritual act of Christendom, and Jesus has no involvement with it. God help us not to be like that here. God help us to be a place where the, the Lord is welcomed. His, His principles are reverenced and revered and respected. And we don't go through just empty, vain ritual. This paragraph ends with the death though of somebody. Verse 8. Now Deborah, 
Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. Its name was Alan Bakuth. Who is this uh, Deborah? This is the first time her name has been given, but apparently she was Rebecca's nurse. We got introduced to her in Genesis 24, verse 59. It says, Thus they sent away Rebecca and her nurse with Abraham's servants and his men. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes concerning her, Genesis 35, verse 8, records the death of Deborah. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. This is the first acknowledgement that Rebecca's nurse was part of the household of Jacob. The fact that she was now part of the household of Jacob and not part of the household of Isaac shows that by now Rebecca, Jacob's mother, had died. Apparently Rebecca died while Jacob was in Haran and Deborah, look at this, joined him in Haran. She, she went all the way up, it's believed, to be where he was, Jacob in Haran, and then came back with him to the land of Canaan, later to be called the land of Israel. This would have made Deborah about 180 years old at her death. She died. In fact, this particular chapter, we've got two deaths. The second one that's going to die in this chapter is Jacob's father, Isaac. Death. The reality of death. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. You move when God said in Genesis 3, you are dust, you were formed from the dust, to the dust you shall return. Genesis 3 verse 19. Boy, I, I understand that God, everything he says is accurate, but that's exactly what happened. Everybody died. Adam lived 930 years and he died. Seth lived 912 years and he died. Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared. We have an exception for Enoch because he was raptured. Maybe we're going to get an exemption through the rapture. Can't promise that. Methuselah, 969 years and he died. Lamech, 770 years, 777 years and he died. Noah, 950 years. He died. What do these people all have in common? They're all dead. It's it's almost like in our cursed world, it's like going to the grocery store where there's something stamped on milk or whatever it is you're buying, and it says not good after such and such a date, an expiration date. That's the world that we're living in. I mean, even uh, just this past week, you have certain people that are sort of larger-than-life figures. One of them, uh, Matthew Perry, larger-than-life star. And he's dead at the age of 54. Someone that I followed growing up as a basketball player, Coach Bobby Knight, three-time NCAA champion, 82, 83 years, he's, he's gone. There, there's something about this concept of death that we just don't want to admit it's true. It's so unnatural to us. The reason it's unnatural is we were designed to live forever. That's why it's unnatural. And when people that are sort of larger than life and influential when, when they die, it's sort of a, a shock. But yet, that's what God said would happen. This is why Psalm 90 in verse 12 says, So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. 
Be careful how you're spending your time as a Christian, what little time you have left. We should not presume as if we're going to be here forever. We may be the rapture generation. Maybe we won't. But if we're not the rapture generation, I can tell you this much, folks, the mortality rate is still 100%. There are no exemptions other than Jesus, other than the rapture generation, other than Enoch, Elijah, a few exceptions. Every single one of us is going to die, and Psalm 90 says, number your days. Live wisely. Don't waste what little time you have in things that are fleshly excursions. So Deborah dies. Deborah is buried there. It says now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried, which is the normal biblical procedure when a believer dies, burial. And then there's a result there in verse 8. She was buried below Bethel under the oak and it was named Alon Bakath. What does that mean? It means oak of weeping. What does Paul say? He never says don't grieve. What he says is don't grieve as those who have no hope. You'll see Deborah again. In the, in the meantime, it's painful, her passing, her separation from you. And that's how we function as Christians living in a fallen world. We, we do mourn. But when a Christian dies, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We know that we'll see them again at the point of the rapture. And now that Jacob has cleansed himself from foreign gods along with those with him, now that he has made the journey from Shechem to Bethel, he's in a place to receive a divine appearance from God greater than the voice that he heard in verse 1, where God is going to say some tremendous things to Jacob that we'll study next time. But this issue of death, Paul the Apostle says death is the last enemy to be abolished. Jesus came into the world to fix this problem. We are people who have a death sentence over our head from original sin. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. Jesus came into the world as the last Adam to reverse the consequences ushered in by the first Adam through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. His final words on the cross were, it is finished. In other words, he asks us as fallen people not to trust in our own good works to fix this problem, original sin, but to trust in what he did for us 2,000 years ago. We celebrated that at the Lord's table. Anybody within the sound of my voice that has never done this, I would exhort them to place their faith, which means trust, for their eternity and the safekeeping of their soul into the transaction of Jesus. That's the only condition that God requires for lost sinners to be made right with him. My hope and prayer is that people in the building or people listening online or people watching and listening long after the fact maybe by the hundreds, maybe by the thousands, will be placing their faith in Jesus for their salvation. That becomes the most important decision a human being could ever make. It's not a matter of joining a church, walking an aisle, giving money. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord says, here's what I did 2,000 years ago to fix the problem. Now rest or trust in that alone. And just like that, a person that does that is instantaneously made right with the God that made them.
If anyone needs more explanation on that, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for these ancient words, this historical account lived out in the lives of some of your greatest choicest servants. I do pray, Lord, that we would walk out these principles this week and we would share your wonderful message of salvation with others that don't know it. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.